Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Fumble to Pelosi podcast. It is now 12.56 in the morning here in San Francisco. Been super warm here. Um, going to Dolores Park every day, so maybe you'll hear a couple podcasts recorded live from Dolores Park uh, coming up in the future. I want to take this moment uh, this evening to get the business out of the way so we can jump right back into the Fun Bites Pelosi podcast. Um, if you use uh, Amazon and you want to support Fun Bites Pelosi, please go on my website, funboatdiplomacy.com, and on the right-hand side of any of the pages, you'll find my Amazon portal link. Go through that link and uh, shop as you normally would at Amazon shares. Cut with me so I can keep everything up and running here on Fun Bites Pelosi. Um, and the last plug, as always, we're supported in a way by uh, Pacific Trainman's Hostel and No Matter What Co-working Space. Uh, and some of you, most of you probably don't know that this hostel is affiliated with a co-working space just around the corner here in San Francisco. Uh, it's a nice place to do work, like office space, techie people, uh, but you don't have to talk to the techie people, you can just do your work, and that's where I record most of my podcasts, so when you hear that it's not in Dolores Park, it's probably taking place in the Mawet co-working space, uh, but anyway, um, if you want to stay here in San Francisco at Pacific Children's Hostel, just use the uh, discount code WAVENSFRIEND3, um, you get a $3 discount off of your um, on, on average, a 32 to $35 um, nightly rate. So, uh, that's all for ads. Um, and we'll jump right into this week's episode with Stavros Anagno. <laughs> Welcome to the new episode of Fun Boat Diplomacy. I'm here today with Stavros Anagnu from Greece, also the UK. Yeah. <clears throat> Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You want to introduce yourself very briefly to the podcast audience? All right. So uh, my name is Stavros Anagnu. Um, my parents are Greek immigrants to the UK. I was born there. I also went to high school in Greece for a while. I now go to college in the UK. Um, doing a year abroad in Indiana at Purdue University, and I want to study how the mind works, how the human mind works. That's what I want to study. Uh, explain a little more. What what aspect of that? So there's a few aspects. One, something that's interested me a lot is uh, what uh, intuition is. Mm-hmm. So when someone says they have an intuition at some, about something, it's not like they're guessing. They're, they're more correct than they usually be if they were just guessing. Um, for instance, if you ask someone, you know, which, like, um, like how, like, have you ever had the, I guess the way to explain it is like, you know something, but you can't explain it. You can't actually uh, fully, you can't actually explain the logical steps. You've just done it so many times, it's become automatic. So for instance, you get in a car, have you ever been in the car and you just blank out? Mm-hmm. Then 20 minutes later, you wake up, it's almost like you wake up and you're like, oh shit, I'm home. Like, I don't remember any of that. I just, I just went complete. my mind wandered and I went completely automatic. I do this drive so much. But you didn't crash. Like, everything was working perfectly. So I wonder what the purpose is and what the purpose of intuition is and why it, <clears throat> and why it's, uh, why it evolved and stuff like, stuff like that, basically. Like, there's, there's lots of, you know, whenever you're, Say in a situation you're like, uh, I don't know, my mom has intuitions about food. She's like, I have a, I have a funny feeling about this person. I don't know. And she can be right a lot of the time. And it's really weird. It's not like she's guessing. It's not like it's coming out 50 50. And like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's um, pretty on point. It's on point, but she can't explain why. She's just like, I guess get a bad feeling. It just goes straight from like input from what you see to emotions. There's no, there's no, um, processing in between that we're conscious of. And yeah, I just find that really interesting. That's a, that's really interesting because, uh, I, I studied just this, um, 
in the most important course that I ever had in college. Um, the course was, and I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast. Uh, it's probably, probably comes up a lot because I talk about it a lot yeah. um, when I'm getting into real conversations. Yeah. And this course was uh, strategic military theory. And uh, one of the books that we read for this course was uh, it's called Hair, Brain, Tortoise, Mind uh, by this guy. Uh, I don't know his first name, but Claxton is his last name. And actually, I know what you're talking about. There's um, Canahan is the re- it's the system one, system two. Uh, this is ba- basically the maybe the, the the idea is that there's two different kinds of decision making faculties. There's deliberate decision making. Which is where you're like, I'm gonna pick up this cup. Yeah, it's the, I know it's the conscious I'm, I'm yeah, talking about, yeah. Conscious, and then the, what he calls the undermined or unconscious, which is, yeah. uh, which is what you said. I drove to school, but I don't, I don't, I don't remember the yeah. drive, I just did it. So Muscle I just, memory, intuition. I, I just got a book where I think co-authored the one you're talking about. It's his original book, and he won the Nobel Prize in Economics for decision making. Yeah. And he talks about how there's system one and system two, which is exactly what we're talking about, the tortoise and the hare. Uh, system one, um, it's very fast, makes uh, associative connections very quickly, mm-hmm. but uh, it can be fallible sometimes, but it works most of the time. Whereas logical logical thinking, or like what it calls system two, is sort of like above that, you know. And uh, Wait, logical we, thinking is... Uh, so, so like you, you consciously have to think through what like you're I doing. Like I picked up this cup. That's the yeah. conscious. Yeah, I picked up this cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a famous thought experiment actually saying, um, so there's this woman that studied, uh, uh, she studied women's studies at college. And then, uh, you know, she really wanted to get involved in activism and stuff. You know, didn't really want a corporate job or anything. Um, and yeah, she went into a career. And these are the two options. You get A or B, which is more likely she picked as a career, given that background. So it doesn't want to get into corporate pretty Feminist wants to do feminist things. Number one, she's a bank teller. Number two, she's a bank teller with uh, who does activism work on the side. She doesn't want to do corporate? Huh. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, the obvious one is like, no, she wouldn't do any of those, right? Yeah, I mean, one, because they would not. She, would, she wouldn't become a bank teller. But a lot of people, a lot of the time, and like you don't stuff, split your you don't split your uh, efforts into two. I think that would make yeah. less sense. I mean, it's also when people. I think the point of that thought experiment was is you pick um, the second. Maybe you can put a screenshot up of um, what the, the there's an actual question, and you can see how it's structured. You pick the second one: bank teller and feminist uh, activist. Even like even though option one isn't, she didn't. Be, she wasn't going to become a bank teller. Just because the op- option two, bank teller and feminist, is just as unlikely, but because you have the associative, yeah, like feminist thing, even though it doesn't, you haven't thought through it logically with a conscious mind. Intuitively, you accept it. You see what I mean? Like, so is you, my intuition fucked because I didn't, I didn't pick either. I think it's a confusing question, but a lot of people do pick two. Not everyone, and some people get it right. Some people are just like neither. Uh, but but yeah. So what we were getting at in in this uh, in in this uh, course was that for everyday things like driving to school, picking up a cup. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. You can be consciously driving to school. You can be consciously picking up a cup, or unconsciously. I'm I'm talking to you right now, and I'm just picking up this cup of coffee, drinking it. Um, that's uh that's all well and good, but it's at the level of uh, military high command where it makes all the difference. Because if you're doing, the argument is that if you're doing deliberate decision making at the level of high command, it means you're taking all of the data, all the reports coming in from the the the, the theater of operations. That means you or your your uh, advisors, whatever you have, you have to be reading every little thing, every little word, every little number, every little chart, and uh, by the time you do that, one one problem is that this information could be wrong, and two, this is incomplete information. There's also three. Uh, you, um, it's, uh, it could be changed. The information could be irrelevant and outdated by the time you you go through it. So, uh, 
um, what you need to have is this intuition, this, uh, this other, this, uh, undermined yeah. to, uh, fill in the blanks, um, without having to go through yeah, all this. It's, it, it does, uh, it's associative. So mm-hmm. if there's a correlation, there's loads of things that are, um, coming in, like evidence from here, evidence from there. Mm-hmm. You use pa- times in the past where you had things happen that were, you know, uh, <clears throat> you, you have things happen that came in this pattern. Say you got a report from the field saying this, that, you know, the planes are coming tonight and this is happening. Then you might get based on what happened last time, if a bad thing or a good thing happened, you might get, you might get a feeling like I feel bad about this. We should pull the troops out. And that was quick rather than, okay, I'm going to think through each and every one. Yeah. Okay. This happened last time looking on records. And by the time, you know, yeah, then it's too late. So this into, it can still be wrong, but it can definitely be very useful, mm-hmm. but it's, it's associative. Like there's no logic to mm-hmm. it. It's just like last time something happened like this. I just got a bad feeling. So that's what I'm going to do again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's. And in the biological sense, uh, I don't know anything. So really I'm trying to like, there's like you said, there's already an established like theories, the system one, system two, or like, uh, you know, tortoise and tortoise and hair mines, tortoise and hair mines. I'm looking for how consciously you think about something. And then the more and more you do it, the, it becomes intuitive uh, and then so you don't have to think through it consciously anymore. And what's yeah. how that evolved. And I think it's to clear space up in the mind. Um, to, to, so you're able so to your process mindset, everything. Okay, it's the same as last time. Okay, it's the same so as you, last as time. So you get so, used to it, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, also looking the other way, how you can uh, sort of pull up your intuitions into your into sort of conscious mind. Mm-hmm. And I think it's possible through meditation and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Like you can actually start observing your thought patterns a bit better. And this, whenever I explain it to people, because the science isn't fully there yet. I mean, there's a lot of MRI studies and stuff going on. A lot of people like... Uh, think it's like gobbledygook, like, you know, just gobbledygook. I haven't said that in a long time. I've never um, used it. <laughs> yeah. They think it's just, they think it's just, you know, like, uh, like bollocks, like what is yeah, the meditation? Woo-woo, like, yeah. it, there's no systematic dictionary, dictionary to talk about this stuff. There's no language. You just, people use these like, uh, rough concepts and stuff and it just sounds, but there's, yeah, but the, it's, it's something that needs to be experienced. It's not, something that not, needs, not, not like, it's so hard to, uh, at the moment, I guess, to, to, to quantify it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can quantify saying like it does these this thing to the region of the brain, and that's associated with, of course, good thing. I mean, there's, of course, you can. I mean, we're not going to solve the mind body problem anytime soon. <laughs> it's not like we'll be able to. The uh, it's very important. Have you done meditation and experienced the, the effects of this? Yeah. Because I, I, any sort of. Uh, meditation or I, I did uh, the sensory deprivation tank before wow that's and, something uh, I really want to try and um, the way I explain it it's kind of like your your mind is a is a table or your, your work desk and your thoughts are sheets of paper different documents yep. and when you meditate or if you go crazier and go into the dep- sensory deprivation tank or if you go even crazier and uh, take psychedelic uh, um, substances it's kind of like taking those uh, those documents and sort of examining them and saying, okay, this goes here, this goes here, and finally you have this nice, neat stack in a, in a, in a three-ring binder, and you get to flip through, and you know where everything's located. And and then with the the entropy of everyday life in your mind, make, having to do this and that, it goes out of order again. But you have to take that moment and put things where they need to go. And that's how, that's how I, I see it. It's crazy yeah. when I went into the, the deprivation tank. Sometimes not, not much would happen, but sometimes um, yeah. crazy things. It's, it's interesting to say that. It's because we can't really describe what's happening inside the mind. We use these analogies, like you said, you use the paper. Uh-huh. Like there's the, the idea of the Cartesian theater. What's inside your mind, there's a, there's, a, there's a theater that, you know. A theater. Someone is watching. That's where your thoughts come in. That's where the sounds come in. Like it all converges on this one spot. Of course, the logical problem with that is like, who's watching? Is it another person with a mind who has a theater inside their brain and uh, it just keeps on going? Which is why... What is this called? Cartesian? The Cartesian theory? theory. I think if, if I'm not mistaken, it's based on Descartes was the first uh, okay. to talk about the mind. Well, he was a very influential in philosophy of mind. So he talked about, you know, there's a Cartesian dualism, which is, you know, there's the physical stuff in the world and then there's mind stuff. And they're distinctly different. And that's... 
it looks like that's wrong. It looks like it's more that there's just physical stuff in the physical world. Um, where he, he says it's a projection of your imagination. I think, yeah, I'm, I can't remember. I'm not too clued up on Descartes. But I just know the basic, but... Um, I think that is a basic uh, tenant of his philosophy, is that things uh, exist not physically. Well, it's less important that they're physically. This cup is less... It's less important that this cup is here, and it's more important that... Um, it's here because my mind projects it. Yeah, I mean, he said that about animals, that the reason we feel those consciousness sounds is because we project it onto them, and to oh. a certain extent, he's right. Yeah, why don't we project consciousness onto trees or something? No, I mean, maybe you can. It's just, like, there must be enough, like, you know, you think there might be more consciousness in a dog than there is in an ant, for instance? That's, I, th- I think... It's weird, the hierarchy it's because, that we have, right? It's because the dog is closer to our evolutionary, you know, has two forward-facing eyes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, has four limbs, you know, it looks looks more like us and we're ready to look at its behavior and say, that's a bit similar to ours, we can see some similarities. Maybe it has consciousness. Some people think on the same level as us, others don't. And I think it's probably just a gradient. Um, it, it's strange, though, right, that we do that, that we say this ant's life is... We step on an ant, it's like fine uh you, you kill a kill a dog in a movie like you see people yeah. go crazy like people yeah they don't care when a whole building falls over in a movie and all these people die when one dog dies then everything goes to shit yeah, a, dog, a dog like it's very quick to form a it's it's also because like when the building goes down there's a lot of distance it's just like random people but when it's a dog Seems like very nice. Very dog seems so innocent. Innocent dog, you know, doesn't know. It hasn't done anything wrong. Like it's just, you know, about the uh, like dolphin and whale captivity. Oh, like uh, like crazy blackfish and that stuff. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I actually um, have you gotten into consciousness of whales and dolphins? uh, I haven't, but I was at Whale Fest in Brighton at the International Whale Fest Festival, and I was um. When they were doing the, they were doing a live stream of the people in the lounge, and they had uh, the per- the director of Blackfish there, the, the director of the Cove. Do you know the yeah, Cove? Yeah, the Cove I've seen as well. He was not the director, sorry, the the lead guy, Rico Barry. Uh, that guy, he used to train um, dolphins in the early on, like for the, for a TV show which had a dolphin on it in the US. I can't remember what it was called. Was it Flipper? Yeah, was it was probably was Flipper. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> at one point, you know, he, had, he got very close to Flipper. Then he noticed Flipper was a bit, you know, like not as energetic. I can't remember the detail of the story, but at one point, Flipper was just in his arms, looked at him, and like uh, stopped breathing, closed his eyes, and died. And the thing is, dolphins, unlike us, they can vol- voluntarily choose to stop breathing, whereas we can't. Yeah, our bodies are like, no, this yeah. is wrong. So they can, because for them, it makes more sense because... Yeah, they can commit suicide. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> they can, because, like, they have to, if they have their impulse, constantly take in oxygen, like, going underneath the sea for a long time would be uh, be really difficult because you're constantly starving for air. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can just stop and you're not as, uh, you know, we, since we're on the ground all the time, we might as well constantly be gasping for air. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's... Um, so that's what he thinks happened, Rico Barry. And at that point, he saw that happen. He went, he went and started freeing all the dolphins around him. Like every, like he just he sort of went. He sort of broke loose. Never worked as a whale uh, dolphin trainer again. It's just been going around trying to stop. You know, in the cove, what happened was that, contrary to like international law at the time, they were killing dolphins. They were luring dolphins into this bay. And spearing, harpooning them, and it wasn't they, the Japanese said at the time we were doing something very humane where it kills in one strike. They had lots of recordings and they put secret cameras and stuff. Yeah, where they just where they just crazy. It's, taking them away from like the pods and the children, like they're still alive, flipping around, like lots of suffering. Yeah, like they recorded the eco sound system, the mm-hmm. you know the, the sonar that they have. sonar they have, and it was going crazy, like it was it was horrible. Um, yeah, so. I can't remember how we got onto that, but that was consciousness. Like a, we went from our consciousness to, to dolphin and whale consciousness. Yeah, do, dolphin. Yeah, dolphins are not always quite close to us. And apparently, they're um, 
can't remember was it the amygdala it's the part of the brain that modulates emotion mm-hmm. it's not necessarily bigger than ours I mean it's bigger but they're also a bigger animal um, it's more complex like how so they think that maybe it they feel emotions to an even greater extent than humans do mm-hmm. into like uh, because they're they mourn their dead you know they pine after lost children there's they also have language uh, yeah. a very complex language with whales and dolphins and uh, and they have actually different dialects that's really crazy yeah so if you go to different places in the world different whales have different dialects even if they're the same species I can imagine be interesting like the evolution of language for me is really interesting like how we came how we came about to have language but it's yeah, what's what's it's the environment that's different so for us we we make sounds in the air yeah it makes sense for us we can write it down we can whatever but they can just project it through the water there's much more i guess when you project sound in the water it's easier to hear because there's more particles to go through and they can, right. they can just shout like really really far like miles and uh they have no need for the ways we do it which is we write stuff we email stuff to each other yeah that's fair i mean yeah. <laughs> i mean i imagine i don't know what the physics behind that is but it seems plausible um yeah, it's really dolphins, huh? It's it's interesting that have you seen um what was it? Uh the film with Martin Freeman, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I haven't gotten into the film or the book and I think it's one of those things that I should have, but I haven't. But Yeah, I got into it quite late, but it starts it starts with the most magnificent sequence. So like basically the dolphins decide they're just gonna leave. And they've been smarter than the human race the whole time. Oh, yeah? Leave the planet? Yeah, and they they communicate <laughs> with, like, doing flips and stuff. It's yeah. like, so we did this flip, which means, you know, so long, all this stuff, thank you for the fish. And then they just do a flip through, um, like, through a double, it's like a, and then they, yeah, he says, he does this complex dance. It's like, yeah, thanks you for everything we're leaving, thanks for the fish. And then, uh, this complex dance was like, but sadly, the complex do- dance was interpreted through, uh, as a double summer, somersault through a hoop. Mm-hmm. So, like, and then, and then, the, and then the, with the dolphins and the whales all just start going into space. <laughs> yeah, just leave. It's That's really awesome. funny. Yeah. There's an episode of The Simpsons where, uh, the dolphins, the trios of horror, it's like a, a Halloween episode and the dolphins take over. But not like that. They just they murder everybody. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> the Treehouse of Horror and Simpsons could get could get really messed up. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Mm. I wish the Simpsons. I wish I kept watching the Simpsons. There was a period where they sucked. Apparently, for like five years, but they got better. I think. Really? I, I, I watched some recent episodes and they're marginally better, not hugely better. I think they should. They should at this point. They should let the po- show die. It's uh, because are they actually making the episodes? I don't know. Okay. I mean, like season thirty now. Like it's it's crazy. Um, it's too. I think it's too much. They've. Yeah. I think it was about ten years ago. I stopped yeah. watching something. But they don't cancel it. But so many people still watch it. And like my graining, yeah, my graining's like I, I really, I don't understand why they haven't canceled it yet. And it's the same with um. It's the same with Family Guy. They're like he's like Family Guy. He wants to finish it around season nine. Well, actually, they canceled it. Yeah, and then they renewed it a, uh, a while back. That was like yeah. a long and time back. Did they cancel it again, or did I think, I think they did stop it? And then there's new episodes again. And I don't know. Yeah. I think there was a point though where, like, I think those two things happened. Then he wanted. Then it's like I'll do it up to this point because then otherwise I'm just out of ideas. But no, they keep on making it, and I guess he's making money off it. So, but I, I don't know how the contracts work if you can just quit. Stop. I have no idea. It's I haven't thought about these shows for like a decade so now. Like, I like that. Yeah, I haven't really been watching these shows recently. It's crazy how time has just gone since like middle school, high school time. Just boom. Now it's twenty sixteen. It's a decade went by. Yeah. It's yeah, I mean it, I'm I'm getting to that. Yeah, college is going really by really fast. And what year are you in? I'm in my junior year. So you're like 21? 20. 20. That hasn't stopped me getting to the bars of San Francisco. If it it seems fast now, it it just gets quicker. It's really The more time you experience, the more the, the, the passage of time relative to what you've experienced is faster because 
when you're really young, when you're like one years old, another year is like half your life. Yeah, That's really like, big. Yeah. Whereas like another year now is like, for me, it's the 20th of my life. And then it just gets. So if you, if you, if you lived forever, every year would be like, boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. Can you imagine my time perception went to the point where it just like, you're, it's going so quickly. Well, that's how the universe experiences it, right? Well, I mean, how we, I, that's a whole weird concept of the universe being conscious enough to experience it. So like, uh, it, imagine that it's experiencing it. And for us, our little tiny fraction of a life, let's say 80 years is how long that will live is nothing for, for the, for the universe, for the universe. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking, I've been ex- explaining to people this cosmic reality of, um, it's, it's from Graham Hancock. He's this, uh, the easiest way to explain him is he's Indiana Jones in real life. No, right? He's like an archeologist, author, um, journalist, uh, scientist, all kinds of things. Yeah. And he said, he's describing, uh, in the past, uh, global cataclysmic catastrophes, um, apocalyptic things that happen to the planet because of things striking it from space. So asteroids, comets, things like this. And uh, because our lives, because humans perceive lives in, let's say, 80 years, like I said, or in terms of uh, election terms, election mm-hmm. cycles, um, we can't wrap our head around the idea that we might need to think about uh, the possibility, the, the, our incredible luck of these thousands of years of not been, having been struck by anything that would, that would destroy all of civilization yeah. as we know it. So, if, uh, I know in the last century there was one, I think it was a comet or an asteroid. It was like in Siberia. Yeah. And like, it killed eight million trees. Yeah, man. Eight like, million can trees. Can you imagine that struck downtown? Downtown Manhattan, you know, be gone, along with the like rest of the East Coast. (laughs) It'd be like a big part of. I think the state of New York, or maybe a few of the like Rhode Island and stuff, whatever Mm -hmm. is nearby. Delaware is there anything? Delaware would be gone. Yeah. So we don't think about it because it's we've gone thousands and thousands of years without anything. I mean, I mean, the fact that we're in a into into we're in between uh, ice ages right now. Yeah, that's where climate change gets really tricky because I'm not an expert at climate change, but I do believe that humans are contributing to to climate change, but there's also a natural change. There is also a natural change. So I I don't know which one's which, like I'm not a scientist. The argument, the argument I make there is that, I mean, sure there is like in however many years, I forget the figure, it will get warmer Uh no matter what we do. We shouldn't just make it worse. No, no, of course not. <laughs> and also, there's also the fact that as the global temperatures rise and we introduce other gas to the atmosphere, we are messing up a lot of the, like you know, the Gulf Stream and like uh, things that we like. That that's <laughs> things that keep be, us alive, basically. Things like complex weather systems, which we don't fully understand yet. Ozone. The ozone. Although we're doing a good job with the ozone, I are think. Are we? No. We st- we stopped using aerosols. aerosols yeah. What's the? Is there a way to uh, create more ozone? Have we done that? I'm not. I'm not sure. I think whatever is gone now is gone. Okay. Well, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> um, That's so crazy. When I learned about that in high school, I was like, "What?" Because it's it's essentially the aerosols uh, have a molecule that will break up the O3, right? I remember so, this. So one of the oxygen, one of the oxygen atoms just leaves the, the ozone molecule and attaches to this other, um, yeah, so there you get molecule. The, the oxygen radical with a free electron. Um, oh, hell. man, science is crazy. Science is crazy. Like sometimes, um, I think maybe I'm getting too into science. I should try to expand my mind a bit more. Um, and actually that's, there's something I do, there's something uh, back on my home university, Sussex in Brighton. Um, there was a society set up called polymath society by this, uh, third year history student. It was basically a society where you could discuss, you could have talks from faculty members and students from any topic. Like we had everything from 
synthetic biology to pop music in Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. It was really, really wide spectrum. It was just really interesting to see the exchange of ideas. You know, what will the philosophers say about stem cells? What will, you know, what will the scientists say to address, you know, a social misconception about global warming or GMOs, etc. Um, and then, you know, it sort of bridges gaps and it gets people to collaborate and like think in a more interdisciplinary way. Like you could be banging your head against a problem in your small field, you know, sort of over specialized. And then someone has a solution right over there, you know, right down the corridor, you know, you might be working on, you know, trying to find out like how this protein works. And there's a physicist down there who knows exactly what's, what's up. He just doesn't know about the problem, but he, he has the technology. Either, so. it, it, it's, it's pretty tragic, actually. There's the example I give, which I started the chapter of polymath at Purdue. And this, I mentioned in my first talk, there's a guy who investigates uh, smell, how smell works. And that's the sense we haven't figured out yet, at least in primary transduction, which is, you know, Primary transduction is just how it goes from electrical signals in the brain to from well from the something on the outside to electrical signals in the brain. So with the eye, a photon comes, you know, hits a certain and hits the rhodopsin, sends a signal to the brain. Yeah, and then that that breaks apart, it starts a protein transfer, and then with the ears, you know, it vibrates the eardrum, and we know from there. Smell, it's not really sure, and um, generally in biology things have worked with like you know it's the lock and key method which is you have a receptor of a specific shape right mm-hmm. and you get a molecule say like you say adrenaline that fits in you know complementarily like if you try to fit in you know this molecule so it's like it i don't know like uh uh tryptophan or something it just goes in it doesn't fit it's no signal so they have to be complementary to each other and they think that's how smell was you know you have a receptor for a certain thing, you know, comes along, like, if it's activated, then, you know, that's how you smell the smell. And then there's, there's also thought experiments that, uh, I think there was one that sort of challenged this, um, which is, okay, and how come we can smell uh, rocket fuel? Because rocket fuel was developed in the 20th century. There is no way we, we evolved, no fit, there's no way we evolved a receptor in that time to sense it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in our... In our ancestral environment, you evolve, you could evolve a receptor over many years. I mean, it was probably evolved in our ancestors, like when we, we like our, you know, I don't know how small, how conserved smell is, but insects have smell, like a lot of things have it. So it's been, it's been on, on the evolutionary track for a while. And, uh, a receptor might have been evolved to avoid sulfur. Sulfur has a bad smell, so you stay away from it. You know, don't just never sit there and inhale the fumes. But with boranes, these rocket fuels, how could you smell them? They also smell a lot like sulfur, which is weird, right? Then there was a, there's something that molecules do. I mean, they're a certain shape, but they're also, they're not just sitting there still, right? They're also, they're doing all of this crazy movement. And it's specific to each molecule. Uh, and it's called, it's called the molecular vibration, right? Certain frequencies, a certain flex, twists, and stuff going on. And, um, that's what he started looking at. He looked at boron, right? It's a rocket fuel. Sulfur, they had completely different shapes, therefore different smells according to the shape model. But the vibrations were exactly the same. It's like, what if somehow in the nose you can sense vibrations, right? And when this theory was first suggested, it was like, that's vibrations crazy. Vibrations of the molecule. Yeah. yeah. But what about, what about the, uh, the sensors also adapting to the molecule. How do you mean? Like the sensor, you know how the molecule has different, it changes and has its own vibration. What if the sensor itself also did changes to to sort of fit um, what it was detecting? I I don't think, I don't think that's a thing. I think the model that's been proposed, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but I think the, the molecule is pretty static, and when a specific shape comes in, it does change shape as it changes conformation. Then, because it's changed shape, it triggers something mm-hmm. downstream, and that's how the process starts. What do you know what a spectroscope is? No. So, a spectroscope is what they use in chemistry labs and so on to sense the vibrations of a molecule. 
We ha- we have that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sense of vibrations of a molecule and tell what it is, right? And these machines, especially in the old days, when there's a, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's an instrument to, you can just, you say, okay, that's what the molecule is. Yeah, I mean, you just see a peak at 2,500 vibrations, it's like, oh, that's, this molecule has this group, which mm-hmm. makes this vibration. Yeah. <laughs> you see, okay, this, judging by these graphs, like, we probably have this molecule, like. How sure are they about these? Like like, oh, it's, this molecule. it's pretty tried and tested. I'm, I'm saying it nonchalantly, but those people who do it were really serious about it. It's been so a, crazy. Technology's been around for a while. When it was first proposed, the theory about that maybe we have one of a basic spectrometer in the nose, like this is crazy. Like yeah. these machines take up a whole room. How could you know? How could it be in our nose? This is it's poppycock, right? And not to bring it back to you know, the answer could be down your corridor. It could be down the you know the physicist. This guy called Luca Turin. Special, he worked in biology, but he read lots of chemistry and physics for fun because he just liked it. And uh, he came across, and he came across the theory that was crazy. Um, but he was like, man, it was quite interesting vibrational theory. Then he also came across a paper that he'd like to read physics that said how to do uh, microscopy, sorry, to do spectroscopy on the nanoscale. He's like, all you need is this, this, and this. And he's like, hang on, we can do that in biology, you know, an electron donor and you know, they're like an energy gap, so the electron can jump, and they we realized, like, oh, actually, and the paper was published in, like, in the, the 80s, and he saw it in the 90s. He's like, yeah, that's been there for a long time, and there was no one, there's no one there to bridge the gap. The knowledge, he says, I'm not a genius. I was just right place, right time. And that's a, that's a problem today. There's lots of data being produced, but it's not, people aren't connecting it. But what's the, what's the results? What's the conclusion of this? So the conclu- so he started investigating the effect a lot more and he's published a lot of evidence in favor. It's very difficult to actually decide which is which until you actually, we, our microscopes and atomic microscopes, for instance, get good enough to actually see what's happening on the receptor level. But it's in debate now. It's, uh, do you know, this paper is being published, published for and against. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll have to see, but it's very interesting. And it, even if he is wrong, it still proves that, you know, just having, just having a experience of another field can really help knowing vaguely what's going on in another field can really help you in your own field. Mm-hmm. And also it's really fun and interesting. So that brings it back to polymath. That's why I think it's a good idea. It's important. It gets people out of their out of the small, in, in terms of understanding society better, with all the so, so scientists understand social stuff better, and also understanding the for people in the social sciences to understand science is better. That's much better than the system that they try to do that with. They try to do this, and I, I know in the United States it's called, oh, we had it, it was called CORE, or it's called, uh, I don't remember what the other names are, but so that you have all these requirements before graduation, you need to. For example, yeah. I had to take a science, I had to take uh, a, a lab science, non-lab science, uh, art class, something like this, just to, they try to get you to like uh, to cover different bases. And I think that's really stupid. Just, it's a waste of time. They should do it more like this, where you, it's a, it's a fusion, it's a, it's a d- dialogue. Yeah, between, and there's uh, a discussion between, between different fields. Instead of, instead of, Okay, you're a history major? Oh, okay. Well, before you graduate, you have to take this lab science class that you'll forget um, after your first yeah. year. Um, it's, yeah. it, it's, um, this is much better. I think they should, they should re- remove that. Just take courses in your field and then engage in other fields. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, how do you know that the person's been there or contributed, right? I mean, with the classes, it's always just like, yeah, person went to this class, got this grade. Like there, if you show up to the polymaths and like you start talking to someone, they mention something really interesting to you that relates to your field, and then you start you go and research it yourself. That's I think that's the best way. So you're getting what you want out of it. You're seeing the usefulness. You might go study. You might go. You might decide. You know, I'm going to take a course in this. This is really, this is really, this is really helpful to me. So uh, the course like. It's like it's well intentioned, but yeah, there is the, the there effect be, is not really there. Better things could be worked out for it. That's for sure. There's a lot of people like you know taking class that they hate. It probably won't be like someone. A lot of people had to take a CS class, which I was in, uh, to become college science majors. And its programming is really useful. And even the class kicked my ass. Like I really like it was really useful and good to learn all that stuff. 
But other people would never use that stuff. Like me. And they were, yeah, they were happy just to be out of there. And they just said that to take that course that brought their GPA down. Like The difference for me is not happy that, yeah, I'm happy I'm not doing it. But it, it almost like hurt my soul to sit in front of, <laughs> like, in front of the computer and try to code. I, I, that's the reason I quit my, uh, master's program was because we started programming and there was one night and we had an assignment. It's a very simple assignment. I was looking at the computer. I have no idea. I sat there for three hours, just not doing, making any accomplishment. This is not for me. I, I feel it. I feel mm-hmm. it's not for me. It's, it's my intuition. Yep. <laughs> my intuition told me that yeah. it was bad. So. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes intuitions can be wrong, but they can definitely be a big hint in the right direction. But yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about Greece. I don't know. All right. Yeah. I'll not be the best person to talk to. Be, talk I mean, to you went there for high school, was it? I went for high school, yeah. Okay. What was the experience of the high school student in Greece? So, Where was it? So, I went, so it was in Athens, and I went to a sort of... It was an international school with lots of... Lots of sort of English, Americans, Australians, and other and Greek kids looking to study in the UK, in the US, especially the UK. And yeah, it was interesting. Like, uh, I took it for granted at the time, but it's quite, Greek culture is quite different. It's, uh, people, I believe, are more laid back, less stressed out, despite all the stuff that's going on. What, what um, years were you there? I was there from um, age 14 to 18. What about years? Like oh, 2009 to 2013. So, crisis years. Yeah. What, did you, what did you observe? So, were, there, were there like tangible, everyday things that you could observe I mean, about? Oh, the, I mean, all the riots and stuff you'd see on TV and people would call me and ask me if I was gay. Those were all gone in the center of the city. Like, I was in the suburbs. So, I was fine. Um... Like, you know, the infrastructure is falling apart a bit. You know, there's a lot of paving. Like, it's just not replaced. Weather is beautiful, though. Um, what else? There's... Among Greeks, is still, there's quite a strong sense of family. Um, I think I was there... When, like, in Central... Like, I watched this documentary, weirdly, like, on Vice about this drug called CISA, which is a very cheap drug made with battery acid and a whole those what is it other things. CISA. CISA. And you can get it for one or two euros. You can get a little pipe with one or two hits in it. And, uh, yeah, it can really fuck you up. And people get addicted to it who are already addicted on heroin but can't afford heroin anymore. And uh, I saw the Vice documentary. I'm like, oh, I know those streets. I walk down them. And the drug, <laughs> drug addicts would just kneel down behind the car and take drugs. And apparently that's on the rise. And... Um, it's a good documentary to take a look at. I'll take a look at it's it. Called, usually, um, usually I, I watch all the device documentaries. Yeah. This one slipped, I think. I yeah, it's, this is, I think this is, um, if you just look at sort of like CSI in Athens or like something like that, it will come up. Sort of drugs in Athens, vice, something, something along those lines. And it's a good one. One I really enjoyed. Um, then it's something that's just like those, you know, I'd walk down this, those streets with my grandma, you know. Look how things have changed. So yeah, drug use is definitely on the rise. Poverty is on the rise. Uh, the the far left and far right wing parties are on the rise too. Extreme parties. So Greece has always had a communist party, and it's still they have a bust of Lenin in the headquarters. Like they're proper communists. Right. They're more communists. In arguably, they're more communist than Stalin was because Stalin wasn't really was more totalitarian. What right? was the history of communism in Greece? So. From what I know, um, communism started to rise. Communists were a big part of the resistance during World War II. Mm-hmm. And then there was a civil war afterwards between the royalists and the communists. And at the Yalta conference, Churchill said, you know, leave, don't incorporate Greece into the bloc countries. And Stalin said, okay, and he just stopped funding and sending supplies to the But there was the communists. And the communists, even though they started losing because they had less supplies, and the royalists won, but the royalists had a really unstable government. There wasn't really a stable government in place till 1950. It's five years after the war. Right. So the communists, the communists still stayed around. The party gets, I mean, it's the fourth biggest party, I think. 
Third biggest party is uh, Golden Dawn. Yeah, that's the right wing. which is very right wing. Very, uh, you know, want to put landmines on the borders, are known for beating up immigrants. They've killed, they've had, there was someone implicated with the party who, um, who shot and killed this uh, Greek rapper. It was sort of like anti, like he, he made, he, like he made a big point of civil rights in his raps. Um, and he was, uh, he was, uh, shot, shot and killed, I believe. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not, it, again, it's not too bad. Like, uh, luckily the government that got in wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a communist party, it was a far left party. And since, even though there's still, things didn't change, like Merkel still, Merkel, Merkel still put us in an austerity deal and basically shit all over us. Um, I mean, it's a difficult situation for the Germans too, because there's a lot of Germans saying, you know, I'm working to pay for this Greek guy's pension. Like, what the fuck? Of course. It makes, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not clear one way or the other. But then, but then you look at the, the migrant, uh, not migrant, we shouldn't call it that, refugee situation. Then, uh, I mean, Greece is taking a big load. Opening up, opening up like this puts the pressure on Greece. Puts the pressure, which is already under a lot of pressure and has a lot of far right support. There's a lot of people for supporting far right parties. Yeah. The fact that immigrants are coming in is strengthening that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent familiar with the situation in Greece and I need to, now that we're talking about this, we need, I need to go back and check it out, but it is, um, it is worrying to say the least. Because I thought I'd seen the end of Golden Dawn because at one point all the, the head members got arrested. Uh, because it was some, they were implicated in this big, um, I can't remember exactly, but I, I remember it was in 2013. Big members got arrested and the party sort of went, sort of went away for a bit, but now they're back. Um, it's, it's really a, a reminder what's going on right now in Europe, not just Greece, uh, that far right radicalism is not, it doesn't, and not only that, just harmful ideas from the past don't always, they're not always dead. Yeah. So we saw the worst of it in the 30s and 40s, but uh, when things get hard enough, even in America, we have fucking Donald Trump. I was just telling, just today's the, uh, in the in the headlines was uh, this woman uh, was kicked out of a Trump rally for being a Muslim. She didn't say anything. She just like sat there was dressed uh, uh, the wrong way and was kicked out. Right. And Donald Trump said uh, something to the tune of, uh, it's their hate, not ours. But he's the one who kicked, no, well, not him, but they're the ones who kicked out this woman for just being Muslim. I mean, that's, a, I mean, that's something that's very, very, uh, it's a very controversial topic at the moment because... At the same time, like, um, I'm an atheist, by the way, mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways, I'm against religion. Mm -hmm. And in, and, uh, especially in certain Muslim countries, the things they implement, I'm really against Islam. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, Saudi Arabia, especially, which everyone's turning a blind eye to, which is bullshit. I'm, I'm more positive about that now because, uh, more people by the week, I think, are seeing the, the, uh, contradiction of, uh, the United States supporting Saudi Arabia and being against ISIS when their uh, practices are very similar. Yeah, I mean, it's it's horrible. Anyway, so against Saudi Arabia and I'm against, you know, like Sharia law and stuff like that. Of course I'm, because it you know, infringes on women's rights and a lot of people's rights. And I don't think you should have your hand cut off yeah. on the street. So uh, it's, it's just simply barbaric. barbaric. It's, it's, yeah, it's, bar it's barbaric, right? Yeah. But I don't think that means that we shouldn't let refugees in in case we lose our culture to, you know, this Muslim, you know, we get overrun by the Muslims, right? That's an argument with, some people would say. With, with our high birth rates. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think, though, like if they get in, if they come to Europe and achieve economic prosperity, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, birth rates in Europe are low, so there, there needs to be, there needs to be, Either people that only start have children or new people need to come in. Um, I think we have to try to incorporate the Muslims as much as possible. 
but at the same time not let them impose their laws on the current government. And um, I don't think they will, though. It's just that's a, that's a strange argument to say. Just think about it. Just because there are more in, let's say, Germany, that doesn't mean that the the uh, the constitution goes out the window. Yeah. I mean, argument, and I think. Yeah, I mean, and even like, yeah, it won't it won't change overnight. Um, and also, you don't you let a, quite a few people in, but not too many, of course. And you try to share the load between all the European countries. Which is a problem because some of them are just saying like no, and that's putting pressure on Greece, putting pressure on countries that are on the Mediterranean and immigrants can get to. Yeah, but it's uh, it, it is very hard to say. It's it's hard it's hard to say. Um, I don't I, think I, even I, and you know how there's also this argument that more radicals will come in, right? That we're opening the door to radicals. And the thing is, uh, in the long run, like sure we might have a few more shootings and stuff, which is bad. It's horrible. Of course, I'm not in support of that. But that, but if it means to survive, but if that means we save a lot more people, a lot, a lot more families, and also we stop families because if we ostracize the families, keep them out, then they get radicalized. They they get radicalized because ISIS at least provides stability. Yeah. In fact, it was a big PR hit for ISIS when so many refugees just picked up and ran, went away. Because where do they want to live? The West. <laughs> Fuck this. Like, like, um, I think it's silly to sort of, uh, block people out and sort of say, say, you know, you're, you know, you become radicalized, you're terrorists. Even though there's, I mean, that's what they're running away from in which case. And I think we need to, like, there sh- should be stricter security measures, that's sure. Like, uh, see the ones that can be radicalized, we should think about it more. We should look more into mental health because that's a big part of it too. It's not like, because so many people follow Islam, right? And it's the same, it's the same readings, essentially. And some people have a very peaceful interpretation. There's lots of peaceful passages. And there's also very, very violent interpretations. And we can't ignore that. Um, but the thing is, it's down, Reza Aslan, this, uh, this, um, this, uh, religious scholar. I have criticisms of him though, so. He has, he does. He, he, has made, some of, he has some of. He has really good points. He has some points the, that you might question. Yeah, but. he he made a good point, and you can you can uh, provide arguments against this. Is that he said he didn't say to like he said to a certain extent that you insert your own values into religion, into the religious text, and it aids your interpretation, right? Yeah. So it's not necessarily you know. Like the Middle East is a very extreme part of the world, and if you want to believe extreme things, you will. Believe extreme things. Yeah, which is yeah. why we, because in the Middle East, you you bring in not only the the um, Islam, you have societal things, political things, economic things, all coming together. All coming it's together. not it's not just and, one isolated and, I mean, reason that yeah. people are radicalized. Yeah, and like religion is a good way of like binding people together, like saying you know you're on the same side as me. We know the same teachings. We share the same morals. It's a great vehicle to get people to stick together. Which is why you know that's the, the Islamic State's a great rallying cry. You know, it's people better than it was just like people having the, the shitty roll of the dice. They're like, yeah, this is something I can do. Yeah, and like the thing is through Facebook and stuff, like you can just like certain pages, so you can have this bullshit being fed to you from ISIS, and it's probably happening to a certain to a certain extent to us as well. And um, in a way, yeah, it must be. It must be. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're influenced by, by, and I think... I think we just have more information, though. We have more... Yeah, we have more channels. We're, and we're more open to that information, whereas ISIS is like, oh, it doesn't fit with this, and let's cross that out. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because the people in the upper echelons of ISIS are all very educated. Very, They're doctors, very, engineers. They have their own really, motives. They have their own motives. Uh... Most, um, and they're, they're really good at recruiting. They're most, most terrorists, uh, I'm not saying the people who carry out attacks, they usually just get some, some poor, poor fuck to go blow himself up. Mm-hmm. But the, the leadership of most terrorist groups are very, very intelligent. But they have, uh, they have an agenda, is the thing. Yeah. It's all political, really. There's, I mean, yes, religion has a, has a, um, Sort of, they 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 put that on the face. Religion is the reason, but you really have to look at political society. Religion is the tool, I think. The religion is a tool to get people to. Because religion is something that it's for a lot of people, 
It's the glue. It's a, it's a glue. Yeah, it's a good. It's a. It's a binder. Um, have you? Have, do you know Sam Harris? Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's the, on the very extreme uh, of, of being against religion. Yeah, I'm like I'm especially Islam. I'm not, I'm not sure about all religions, but like, especially Islam. He's a like I'm. I don't know if I go to his extent. Like I'm an atheist, and I'm, I'm against religion for other reasons, and I think we should. It's a, it's something in society we should take the good from and take a lot of the doctrine out and be done with it. Um, although, but religion we do have to accept it helps a lot of people, and we need to find ways to parse out the good stuff and keep the bad. And I'm against this one because they have, especially in some Islamic countries, and there's also political motivations. And you know, like there's a in Saudi Arabia, it's basically a family that runs the country. There's other reasons too. So, and I think, I mean, religion's an idea you can get people to ex- accept things uncritically, um, just by providing hope. But that's the. But it can also be used for a good thing too. You know, get people to be. You know, it can help people see the virtues of being kind and so on. But when it comes to we shouldn't let them in, and like they're going to come in and ruin the country, and uh, we should you know keep them in the Middle East. I don't think that's. I mean, sure, that would be playing the safe option if you do think they're going to radicalize everyone. But sooner or later, the population's growing. Sooner or later, we're going to have to deal with it. I think. And if we sort of, if we're kind to them, accept them with open arms, some will still be radicalized, but others people will, will see the good things in the West. Oh, no, I think that, that's, 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 um, that's the happy, <laughs> that's the happy, uh, utopian view of it. I mean, I think, I think stuff would go wrong and there would be, there will be, like, there is multiculturalism, like, there is, it's very difficult, but, Populations are growing, people are going all across the world. We're going to have to deal with multiculturalism sooner or later and make it work. Sure, sure. But uh, that, that that can get into a whole different yeah. context. Because um, the, the way... There's there's a another way, I think. Not to exclude them, not to close borders. And also not to not to just open the doors like what Angela Merkel did. I, another, I, another. I don't think I'd open the doors, but I mean, I think there still needs to be. Because that was, I think that was some sort of crazy. That was some sort of lunacy, really. Like to to, for example, me, if I wanted to go to the European Union, I have to get a get a stamp and I have a time limit. I'm studying there. I need to get a visa. I'm working there. I need to get a visa. Uh, and I I've always wanted to like for for a couple of years now been to, to be a resident of the European Union. Uh, and then in September, Angela Merkel goes, yeah, everyone comes in now. <laughs> what the fuck? I can't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not in a war zone. Of course, it's not hard. It's not that I'm not running from, from bombs, but it, to just do that, it, it's a, they've it's led a, in, sort of a weird, they've led in close to a million now. 1.1 million into just Germany alone. It's a lot. By now. 1.1 million. Um, not Syrian, not exclusively Syrians. I think about three hundred to four hundred thousand are Syrians, and there's the rest are Afghans, Iraqis, uh, people from Eritrea, um, a mix. Yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, I think there is to get into the U.S. Especially, I think there is a lot of background checks, and I think three years head, of background checks. Yeah, and I think the head of the FBI needs to sign off. Was it the head of the FBI or some sort of bureau needs to sign off each and every single one? Yeah. One person. Yeah. So that's not, but that's, 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 that's a very small, uh, focus that people have. They're like, should we let them in because it's the right thing to do? Or should we block them out because of security reasons? These are, this is the dialogue. Whereas you don't really, and there's not much of a debate about whether, well, to whether, what this extent? Is, whether this is even the, the most, uh, effective way of helping them. Because imagine the, the reason that for example, Lebanon and Jordan don't, they've taken so many refugees and it's hard for them. They, it's a real burden. What if we helped use that same money we would have had for, uh, for supporting refugees in, let's say, America and just take that money and to, help to su- Lebanon. support Lebanon or Jordan to, to, uh, the, for example, UN refugee, uh, what is this called? Uh, Council? Council on, on human, 
UNHCR. I don't yeah. remember what it stands for. Uh, the statistic, I think, it does come from a really weird uh, conservative um, research. Um, which, which I don't remember which one, uh, but uh, their calculation is that uh, for every one, the amount of money you would spend on one refugee in the United to support them in the United States, you can support 52 in um, a neighboring country. Uh, even if that doesn't, it's not the numbers are a little bit off. Doesn't it make sense that one, it's closer? So Syria, let's go right next door. Similar to Syria, similar not as much as culture shock, yeah. and uh, and uh, the the cost is much lower. You can save more people. This is in terms of saving people, not not trying not uh, not trying to be uh, super open arms and, and yeah. kumbaya about it all. But yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, we have to. I mean that that sounds that sounds very reasonable, but at the same time, we have to think about the economic infrastructure. And how if Lebanon and was it Lebanon and Jordan Jordan can actually how, how long they can hold on to these refugees? Yeah, Lebanon less stable, like it's stable now. But uh, Jordan's the better bet because Jordan is they're they're very uh, strong allies of the United States. Yeah, jo- Jordan's we 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 should support these countries as much as possible. But I think can they take all the immigrants though? That's the thing. So I think it's going to reach breaking point. So, but uh, this one is less likely. But Saudi Arabia, they have plenty of space. They're not, they don't want to take them, of course. It's, that's bullshit. There should be pressure put on Saudi Arabia to take refugees. Yeah. But do people want to live there? That's the thing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it'd be better than it'd be better than nothing. But yeah, well, well, <laughs> that's not a happy place to come on our time. Where we're coming up on an hour now, so that's not a good place to end. But, but that seems like the way it's gonna be. Yeah, it seems like think, the way it's gonna be. I, I think the I think the moral of the story is uh, fuck Saudi Arabia, fuck ISIS, fuck Saudi Arabia, <laughs> fuck ISIS. I think that's not a bad way to end it. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, uh, a week later, you're gonna see some headlines. Saudi Arabia starts attacking me or something. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Nobody we're gonna come to anyway. The, so we're gonna come to San Francisco and find you. Oh fuck! They have a lot of money, so I don't doubt it. I don't, I don't think they're worried either, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, they're worried about some stupid shit like sorcery. So who knows? Really? You know, you, you you didn't know this? No. Oh, there's another reason to hate Saudi Arabia. They behead people for sorcery. What the fuck, dude? For sorcery. That is a backward-ass country. Yeah. But they've got the oil. But they've got the fucking oil. Which I think that's why no one criticizes them. Like, well, that's for sure why. It's uh, And they have a lot of weapons from the United States. Yeah. And in the UK, they buy a lot of weapons from the UK. Yeah. They should... Um, uh, as much... I mean, a lot of the countries are worried about economic prosperity. And I guess if Saudi Arabia doesn't get weapons from the U.S. or the U.K., it'll just get them from Russia. Yeah, that's the that's the tango of a international politics. Is who do they buy weapons from? Yeah, if only if only like this is very optimistic. If only Russia, U.S. Just you know you know what Saudi Arabia? Fuck you! We're not doing business with you. And China is like yeah yeah Saudi Arabia. Fuck you. Of course that never happens. They cannot look at the oil. Still, yeah. When the oil runs out, because that's it's a bit fig- because we figure it out. Because the Muslim world, they need their own waves of feminism. Because and that's that's the thing that I was about to get at was uh, this is like the Protestant Reformation. This is a moment. That's why we're fucking it up, is because we're trying to uh, inject ourselves into a situation that is a Shia Sunni problem. This needs to be figured out by the followers of Islam. Not by, not by tomahawk to, missiles from the U.S. Yeah, they, and they need to modernize themselves. Like they, they need I to mean, have a dialogue. If that, if that's with words or with knives, it uh, needs to. They, they need to figure this shit out. Because I mean, I can't remember who it was who said it. That, but maybe we should just let them figure things out. I absolutely think so. It's not going to be pretty. No, it's going to be really bad. But uh, you can't, um, you can't just keep putting a bandaid on a broken leg. It, it doesn't. Yeah. Work like that. I mean. Yeah, the only it's, like, it's like the Israel-Palestine issue. It's it's not something you can just put a band-aid on. That shit needs to be figured out. Yeah, although I think it's at this point it's pretty easy to see who. I mean, I'm not necessarily vilify anyone, but 
Israel does some pretty shitty things. Yeah, so does so does uh, Hamas. So does Hamas. So does Hezbollah. So does uh, the, the, yeah. the honest for a front. True, um, true. I mean, there's, there's terrorist organizations. I'm not denying it. That's why I can't say one's a villain, one's a good guy. Yeah. It's very hard to say that. But Israel is sort of just like slowly shrinking. Like the Gaza Strip isn't a thing anymore. It's just like little patches of ground. Yeah. Like. Uh, and so yeah, there's it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's just, it's sort of an equation has to be solved it's but that's that's really um that's something robert mcnamara would say the uh, secretary of defense during the vietnam war he would say something like this and it's a very detached way of thinking about it because at the end of the day i mean it's still happening now but uh, people are going to suffer it's going to be bad i don't want to end it like this we keep getting on the middle yeah, middle east is something i should just not talk about yeah, i mean the middle east it's just one of those things that's uh it's a very interesting place right now. Um, <laughs> it's uh, a lot of eyes. It's funny we have the map here and we're looking at it. This, it always comes to this. So we're recording right now in uh, no matter what co-working space uh, next to the hostel that I work at. And we have this uh, in the meeting room that I record in. We have a big map of the world. And mm-hmm. my guests will just like be hanging out. We'll be talking and we'll look at the map and start men- uh Making little remarks about different places in the world. I was here with a with a this guy guard from uh, from Norway. We were talking about how fucking crazy big the U.S. and Canada are, and how much space there is to go uh, go in the woods and just live among the trees. Yeah, I mean that's a yeah. I mean America, you can just it's just based on growth, really. Like, I guess that's a good way to end it. Yeah, all right. It's it's been a blast, dude. I really enjoyed it. It's very stimulating. Yeah, it was good. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Thanks for having me.